This is an ABC podcast. Oh, hello. Sorry, didn't see you there. Welcome to The Minefield, a program about negotiating the ethical and moral dilemmas of modern life. Waleed Ali is my name. Scott Stevens is my co-host. Scott, this will be fun. (laughs) Will it? Fun's not the right word, is it? Every now and again, you you reach for a word and you land on exactly the wrong one. I think that's what just happened (laughs) in that moment. Um, I'm going to say this will be big in a way Mm. because today we're discussing a story that is just, it feels like it's been around forever. And I don't know if you would agree with this assessment, but I feel like it's one of those stories we have as a public discussed very badly for a very long time in the moments we've been discussing Mm. it. Mm. Well said. Would that be fair? Absolutely right. And in fact, that, if there's anything that we're discussing on this particular episode, it's probably that. Um, you, you could say that this is going to be one of the most meta conversations that we've had because it's not really about the topic, but about how badly we've done the topic. And it probably then, mm. by discussing how badly we've done the topic, I think it sheds some really important, and I would say uh, politically, democratically, ethically serious light on just how we should begin thinking about the topic in a clearer, more so, responsible way. Without me knowing what you're going to say, can I just distill into right in a roughly a sentence what I think the problem is? Or, yeah, sure. Or how, okay, so we're talking about Julian Assange. Mm-hmm. Um, which, which, and, which? Can I say we have never discussed? I thought we did. No. I thought we did a show on it. Nope. Did we not? Nope. Not even once. Not even wow. once. I, I believe his name may have come up very, very fleetingly in the course of a conversation some years back that I'll mention perhaps briefly. Uh, but we've never devoted any serious consideration to the man, to the topic, to the methods, uh, to the political, ethical Journalistic implications, never, I was not once. Sure, I, even in my mind, I had it all fleshed out. Peter Grester was the guest, and all sorts of things. Apparently, I made all that up. Yes, you did. That must have been a fever dream. I'm sorry about that. But um, we're talking about we're talking about when I say we're talking about Julian Assange, that's the wrong thing to say. No, we're not. We're actually. talking about the Julian Assange saga. Um, in light of the fact that his extradition to the United States has now been uh, approved by the United Kingdom, mm-hmm. and this puts Australian government in a position of having to take a stand or not on it and pursue diplomatic avenues, probably outside of the public gaze and so on and so forth. Um, but if I'm going to distill in a sentence what I think the problem is, mm. I think far too much of the discussion has been about Julian Assange. Mm-hmm. And there has been far too much discussion about, um, sorry, that proceeds on the basis of whether you think he's a hero or not, mm. or a villain or not. Mm-hmm. And scant attention if that's not too harsh, paid to the underlying principles uh, that are at play here Mm -hmm. and how they might be applied to people who are very much not Julian Assange. And so we sort of obscure what's actually at stake. That's my sort of broad, ambit description. Um, I now leave it to you to do whatever you want with that. Okay. I think you're right. I think that is one half of the issue. Uh, I mean, quite literally one half of the issue. One half is there are some people who find Assange such a distasteful, uh, objectionable, perhaps even morally objectionable figure on any number of fronts from his associations with disreputable, anti-democratic, authoritarian, uh, anti-Semitic persons, 
uh, right through to uh, the allegations that were made against him of sexual assault laid by two women uh, back in 2010. Um, so there may be any number of fronts on which someone might find Julian Assange uh, unlikable, distasteful, uh, and have a certain kind of uh, personal or interpersonal disdain for him. That might include, by the way, some of the media bodies, media partners, media companies, journalists, editors who worked with him. So people who simply find him distaste. And therefore, because they don't like him, they find something objectionable about pretty much everything that he has done. So the weight of his personality or the distastefulness of that personality then covers, obscures anything that might be good, laudable, noble, beneficial, democratically productive uh, about his efforts uh, concerning uh, political accountability, democratic transparency, the future of journalism, and so on. I but might go further than that, though, and say even the question of whether or not his conduct was laudable is a little bit beside the point to me. I don't agree there. Maybe we can have that out. Okay. The other half of the issue, though, and while you're more concerned about that first, I think I'm probably more concerned about the second, which maybe says something about the two of us. Oh, we really should have had a meeting. <laughs> uh, the other half is there are those who are so passionate about the cause of Assange and what any giving ground on any point concerning his conduct or not, concerning his ethics or not, concerning his treatment and stewardship of sensitive material or not, who are so sensitive about Assange as a cause and what Assange as a cause might then mean for, I don't know, the future of Western democracy, or the future of press freedom. They are so passionate about Assange as a cause that no criticism of Assange or no admission that there really may have been things for which he has rightly been charged and for which he should be held accountable and for which he should be tried can even be broached. In, in other words, we're in a position where there's a kind of aesthetic or culinary distaste for Assange, or there's a religious fervor surrounding Assange, which for me borders on something like Assange absolutism, or even if we want to coin a phrase, Assangeism. And every time there's some new development that may or may not be seismic, but that simply represents the normal procedure of, a, of the cause of justice, uh, it's either heralded as capital J justice, yes, this guy is finally getting what he deserves, or it's decried as a travesty of justice. This just demonstrates once more uh, the corruption, the collusiveness on the part of the UK legal system. And I suppose, Waleed, I find both responses objectionable on all sorts of different levels. I find the second response, uh, Assange's extradition to the United States has been greenlit after going through the, the UK district court. High Court and Supreme Court. There's a little qualification surrounding Supreme Court we can get to if you want. But the fact that that extradition request on the part of the United States has been approved is proof of collusion between the High Court and Supreme Court and the UK government, which is little more than a functionary of the US government. It's, well, but the, the ultimate decision to extradite became a, a political decision. Yes, right? it did. It was, it was yes, in the hands did. of a politician. So that's right. 
that's probably more where, and I, I, by the way, I don't mean to be buying into collusion arguments, but that's probably more the site of it, right? No, There's no, no, no. Sorry, Walid, I'm, I'm saying what was claimed by activists, proponents, supporters, lawyers on Assange's behalf that this is further evidence of the corruption. That's the word that was used, corruption and collusion on the part of the UK legal system that are doing little more than rubber stamping a political decision that was already made by the British government. I find that astonishing that that can be claimed with good faith. So I suppose I, I, I find that on both fronts, the fact that nothing this guy has done is laudable, noble, and therefore he deserves whatever is coming to him. Or this guy is a fifth estate messiah. And so everything that he does needs to be protected, lest Western democracy and press freedom be allowed to fall. I find both objectionable on so many different levels. Um, I feel like the, your very last sentence there framed it slightly differently to the way you'd framed it in the conversation. But what I would say is to me that broad, broadly speaking, those two schools that you've identified. Schools, is that the right word? I don't know. It's not Denom like an intellectual tradition. Denominations? Yeah, maybe. Um, <laughs> that Faith traditions? Speaking, Good yeah, those, those, those two denominations, I think they commit the common mistake mm. of making this about Julian Assange, right? Yeah, so, that's right. It comes back to that point I was making, I guess, Messiah, villain, whatever. That becomes the driving force of your engagement with the issue. Now, I can well understand for people who are personally invested, you know, his friends, his family, um, people who've worked with him, et cetera. To some extent, they are perfectly entitled to approach the issue through that lens. Yes. It, it would be inhuman to ask them not to. That's, I agree. that's fair enough. I agree. But as far as public conversation goes and the consideration of, of these things, I just feel like it would be a much better conversation if you were banned from mentioning the, the name Julian Assange and trying to assess him. Because I, what I fear happens, and maybe this is a difference between sort of my more, I don't know, legal cultivation and your more philosophical one or mm -hmm. something. But what I'm trying to do here is put the emphasis on questions of abstract principle. Mm -hmm. And the thing about abstract principle, and this shows up in all manner of public debates, particularly around law, the thing about abstract principle is the real test of them is when they are applied to people you don't like. Yes. It's when they are applied to scoundrels or people who've done something that you regard as beyond the pale or unconscionable. Do they stand up in that moment? Right? And I don't know. I mean, clearly this is a hopeless cause and we're not even going to do it in this show, but I, I, I wonder where we would have ended up if you were not allowed to mention the personal personality of, of Julian Assange at the heart of this mm. and, and just discuss this more in the abstract. So in other words, be less concerned with the moral evaluation of the person at the centre of it and more concerned with the, the principles of public moment. Yep, I think that's right. Um, yeah, oh, I'm surprised to hear you say that. Can I, I, you would... can I add one slight qualification though? Ah, there we go. Yeah. Well, no, no, I, no, I, I do think you're right. And I think if we regard the law as a fundamental instrument of both dignity and shared value, uh, or an, a, an agent, an instrument of what we might call, say, recognition, that all people stand equally in its light, and therefore all people are conferred a certain dignity in its light. 
I suppose the one thing that I would probably qualify is you're right, of course, that because matters of principle are at stake, to some extent, the personality that's at the center of it, their distastefulness or their sanctity, let's say, that ought to be irrelevant or that ought to be only of marginal or secondary, at least, concern. Um, but I think there is then a subsidiary effect to that, isn't there? Which is that if we agree that there's abstract principle at stake, but if we also agree that whoever the person who stands in the dock is, whoever the person who is subjected to the light of the law is, that person needs to be seen reflexively as a person who is warranted the equal dignity of the law. In other words, what the law then ought to do is to allow that person to be seen in a light that is more morally consequential, that is also morally productive. Um, there's this astonishing book. Uh, Helen Garner, I'm sure I've said, well, it is one of my favorite authors, period, much less Australian writers. Her book, The House of Grief, which is the account of the trial of, yeah, the last name is Farquharson. I can't remember. This is the father who drove his car off the road into the dam. His two children drowned. I'm sure you, you, recall, the, you recall the trial. Um, she gives this touching account of after weeks of deliberation, the judge inviting Mr. Farquharson to stand up after the jury uh, leaves to begin the process of deliberation. And he says in this kind of human touching voice, Mr. Farquharson, uh, this is the most difficult time of all. Waiting is hard. I suggest however you can that you find a way of bearing up under it. And I think there's something about that moment of judicial concern for the sheer humanness of the person who's in the dock that is not ancillary to, it's not simply additional to the rule of law, but it's an essential part of it. That yes, matters of principle are paramount, but that there's something about the indiscriminate application of principle that ought to allow any person who stands at the dock to be seen with a degree of capital D dignity. Is that a, is that pushing things further than you're prepared to go? No, I think that's actually pulling them back to what I'm saying. Okay, <laughs> because, nice. Because the, the point of, um, I guess what we're saying is the inalienable dignity of the human subject in the dock is that it's meant to be inalienable hmm. and therefore it's not about the person. Hmm. It's about the fact that they're a person. Yes. Yeah? Yep, okay. agreed. Yep. So... I just think what we need to be able to do is at the very least have space for the convers in the conversation for the position that says, I have very serious misgivings with the conduct of the person, but it is simultaneously unconscionable uh, for him to be the subject of this sort of investigation or these sorts of charges or so on. Hmm. Um, is, is that your position in this particular case? I'm going to say it's my starting position. I, I'm wow. I'm open to you persuading me to amend it. But, yeah, for the purpose of the conversation, that's where I'm starting. How, about how, do, you, how do you want to – I mean, it occurs to me that we um, – We don't know what each other thinks about this. This is really no, interesting. No, we don't. No. And also that we haven't in the course of this conversation yet <laughs> – uh, actually gone through any of the facts of it. That's right. <laughs> we've more or less just assumed that this subject we haven't discussed over how many years we've been doing this um, 
is is well known. And I guess a lot of it would be known, particularly to our audience, I suspect, yeah, quite but, engaged. But why don't you take us through a kind of potted... Okay, sure, sure, then, sure. Then we sure, can but, know what we're not actually But can I, just before we do, just to make one further point, just to tease this out, what we're doing is we're erecting a kind of intellectual or ethical scaffolding um, within which we can hopefully build our little edifice. So I, I don't, I don't sort of mind it's the endless very loyally, Scott. Prefaces. I finally won you over to my side. No, this is good. I love this. Okay, so we've just agreed, I think, on the point that the indiscriminate application of the principles of law are paramount here, and that the distastefulness or the sanctity of the person at the heart of it ought to be given only secondary concern. Um, and they're both are equally risky. And they're both are equally risk risky. I think that's right. Yeah. I think that's right. Okay. What can then be said in favor of or against the person at the heart of the matter without, uh, by way of either prosecution or defense, without pulling down people's faith in the very principles of law upon which a just outcome relies. In other words, let me just, let me sort of... If we're so invested in him... Drop the curtain. Can we? Yeah. Yeah. So, so my great concern, Walid, is that I believe quite strongly that certain things are being claimed on Assange's behalf about the uprightness of his conduct and about the justifiability of his conduct, and that certain warnings are being leveled by his supporters about what will happen should Assange be extradited that may well not just build Assange up to a degree that no human being should be permitted to be built up, lest sort of, you know, our faith in humanity as such rely on his sort of standing or falling, but that also risks pulling down our faith in legal, political, diplomatic processes and institutions upon which our very faith in something like a just political order depends. I mean, well, it's some of the things that have been said about the American judicial system, about the threats in American prisons, uh, about the degree of, of conspiracy that is alleged to have taken place between the United States, the UK, Australia, and Sweden, uh, about conspiracy and corruption in legal institutions and on the part of senior legal figures, and also the extent to which the future of press freedom hangs or falls on whether Assange is extradited or not to the United States. I find there's so many things that are being claimed on his behalf that run the risk of so corrupting or damaging people's faith in the institutions of democracy and rule of law that, I mean, is the defense really worth the price of causing people to lose faith altogether in legal systems, in the internal accountability structures within journalism, of the ability of politicians and judges to behave and to act and to legislate in good faith. I just find the, the, the number of things that have to be true for Assange's absolute capital I innocence to be maintained, I, I, I find that alarming and risky that should the extradition go ahead, should his trial go ahead, should he be convicted on the charges, that people's faith in the systems of justice and of international politics and of democratic accountability will be so damaged that I'm not sure that the cost will have been worth the outcome. Right, but only to the extent that they go beyond the realms of um, sort of sober, serious and powerful critique of what's happened. Yeah, okay. So I guess what I'm saying is to the extent it's true, then go for it. Um, the argument then becomes about what's true. Wow. So okay. I, want, I want you to sharpen this then. What do you think 
Assange is on trial for? Well, I can tell you quite specifically, because through a series of uh, three indictments, one initial indictment that was uh, unsealed in 2018, uh, and then two superseding indictments, one in 2019 and the other in 2020, um, the U.S. Justice Department has gone to quite extraordinary lengths to differentiate the act of receiving classified information, which they say he has done, but they are not charging him with, mm-hmm. of publishing classified information, which they say he has done, but which they are not charging him with. They have separated that quite specifically from doing two things. One, cons- uh, soliciting slash conspiring uh, with persons who had access to classified information to assist them in procuring that information. In other words, hacking, breaking in illegally to try to not just receive information, but effectively steal that information and to abet the process of theft uh, of that information. That's number one. And I can read to you quite specifically from the indictments if you'd like to read. Uh, and the other is publishing information, not redacted information, which they, which the indictments acknowledge that uh, uh, press outlets like the New York Times, The Guardian, Der Spiegel, El Pai, Le Monde, all of them engaged in, but in a responsible and redacted form, which the indictments say were are specifically covered by uh, um, the First Amendment, uh, and no prosecutor would dream of publishing, lest those other uh, newspapers be drawn into the fray. They distinguish between the publication of redacted documents uh, in the public interest versus the mass publication of documents that placed persons who were informants, especially in Afghanistan and Iraq, in immediate threat of reprisal, of imprisonment, and of death. In other words, the two things that Assange is, uh, is being indicted of are the two things that no responsible news organization in the world would do, namely uh, assist in the illegal theft of classified information, in other words, to conspire for the theft of that information, and secondly, to place persons uh, willfully, heedlessly, or recklessly at risk risk through the mass publication, the indiscriminate publication uh, of material that includes their details, their names, or otherwise ways that they could be easily identified and placed at significant risk, if not um, mortal risk. Okay. So that's a very helpful sharpening of it. It's and going to be very... Can I just say, Waleed? Yeah. On both fronts, it is right for him to be, in my opinion, it is right for him to be extradited. It is right for him to be placed on trial. The idea, the supposition, the claim on the part of some of his supporters that there is no way that he could receive a fair trial, I find, frankly, ludicrous and outright offensive, given the number of interests there are in the outcome of this trial and the further protections that would be sought so that journalists, newspaper organizations, uh, media bodies would not be implicated in any kind of outcome of the trial. I find so the idea... There'll be, there'll be enough media outlets that have an interest in this that they'll... Um, absolutely. Becoming, absolutely. Yeah. So I, I take that point. I, I think my concern is there's a certain promiscuity even to the way those things have been framed, as you've identified. Mm. Right. Once you start talking about it's okay to receive classified information and even publish it, but what's not okay is to procure it in this way. I think you run into some really tricky points of definition there because the conduct of whistleblowers 
and the conduct of journalists working with whistleblowers will frequently, I think by necessity, have to step on lines like that. And so to talk about the journalist's role in that and the only legitimate journalist's role as an entirely passive one mm-hmm. seems to me to create a bit of an artifice. I mean, I've never done investigative reporting. I should disclaim that. So it's possible I'm wrong about this uh, and the people who've done investigative reporting will be better placed to say. But it seems like, the, it seems to me there is a level of artifice in regarding the legitimate journalist's role as that passive in, in that position. Whistleblowers very often will do things that are contrary to the law and the policy of the people that mm-hmm. that they're working under. Yep. And if you don't have extremely good whistleblower protection laws, yes. um, it wouldn't necessarily make it wrong for them to do that. And I don't think it would necessarily be wrong, in circum- certain circumstances at least, for journalists to be assisting in that process. What we're arguing over really are what the appropriate limits of that are. Mm-hmm. Similarly with the question of publication and, you know, publishing what's appropriate um, and the restraining publication. Mm. I hear those concerns. My journalistic criticism, if that's the right phrasing of Julian Assange, is the indiscriminate publication of things. But I do worry about the government being or seeking to be some kind of arbiter of that. Now, you'll say they're not. The court is. They can make, yes, sure. And so maybe there's an argument that the court is an appropriate forum for those things to be to be agitated, but it makes me nervous mm-hmm. um, because what you're dealing with now are questions of editorial judgment. People, news organisations publish things very often that place people in some kind of danger, mm. um, that have an adverse impact or effect on their lives. Um, there are people whose lives basically get ruined by news stories. In some of those cases, the publication of those news stories is a failure of journalistic standards or failing to adhere to journalistic standards. In other cases, you would probably have to say it's the opera. That's, that's what happens. Mm. That's the price you pay for um, having a mechanism like the fourth estate that will publish things people don't want published. Um, there's going to be some of that sort of collateral damage, and it's horrible if you are that person, um, but there's an overriding public interest, right? Mm. I'm nervous about the promiscuity, the, the ill definition of some of these things. Um, I know you want to respond to that. Can I can I suggest we get a guest in and yes. you can perhaps tease that out in the course of that conversation? Yeah, yeah. of course. All right, good. I'm glad I got your permission. You don't need my permission, but you could feel me agitating, couldn't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's probably right. Um, if you have just joined us, you're listening to The Minefield. Thank you very much for doing so. You uh, may be doing so on the radio, in which case uh, it's wonderful to have you along. But you can also listen as a podcast or at your convenience on the ABC Listen app or subscribe to us as a podcast wherever you subscribe to podcasts. Our guest is someone we frequently turn to in moments of great need when a responsible voice that maybe isn't ours is required. Uh, Catherine Gelber is the head of the School of Political Science and International Studies, and she's professor of politics and public policy at the University of Queensland. Catherine, thanks so much for joining us once again on The Minefield. Thank you for having me. So it's at this point, I think, that the discussion takes a little bit of a turn. 
because one of the central claims that has been made by way of defense of Assange, but also by way of warning about what might happen should Assange be extradited, charged formally, placed on trial, and possibly convicted, is that what's at stake is nothing less than free speech. Uh, in other words, Assange ought to be protected under free speech, say, uh, I mean, what WikiLeaks claims is, uh, is the free speech protections accorded by Article 19 of the Declaration of Human Rights, um, but that in the United States, Assange ought to be protected by the First Amendment, which most press organizations are. Um, those who say that essentially the heavens will fall if he is extradited say that this is a threat to journalists everywhere uh, because it's a direct frontal assault on the freedom of the press. I have concerns about that line of argument, but what do you think? So freedom of the press is a subset, if you like, of uh, broader free speech principles. It's a very important subset that applies to a particular type of endeavour that in current political discourse we are seeing in decline. And that is an endeavour that involves fact-checking, that involves editorial judgement, that involves the ethics about disclosure where you have to balance disclosure against risk um, and balance all of that against public interest. And I don't, we, we don't need to talk in detail about Julian Assange's particular case here around that point, but certainly the, the indictment that you read out suggests that he didn't do those things that would be associated with what you might consider to be traditional journalism. That sits can in- I just say, can I say briefly one thing about that indictment that I did not include, and this was then the subject of the, the second superseding indictment, is that it's not just Assange's particular interaction with Chelsea Manning and the particular conspiring to achieve illegal uh, information, in other words, to assist in the act of hacking, including um, intervening himself to try to cover Chelsea Manning's tracks, uh, but also conspiring with other hackers to try mm. to help them, to try to assist them actively, not just receiving things, but to assist them yeah. actively in hacking into, in breaching illegally uh, the databases, the security walls uh, of other organisations. So it's it's a much more extensive uh, rap sheet than that. So that raises serious questions about the extent to which and the ways in which uh, Assange's activities themselves can be defined as journalism, and that sits in a broader conversation that we're happening in all liberal democracies about journalism and what it amounts to in a digital age when pretty much anybody with a keyboard can publish their views. So there's that whole subset of freedom of speech, which in and of itself is difficult and complicated and becoming more and more complicated by the nature of the online environment where any person with a keyboard can theoretically put things out into the airwaves. Though, of course, Assange did more than that. Then the bigger issue, of course, is free speech. And here we also have, in my view, a really fundamental challenge that we're seeing lots and lots of examples of in court cases, in the Assange in, uh, events and so on, which is a complete 
overturning of what free speech means. So I think that the Assange incident is just one incident among many where the concept of free speech is being turned on its head. And what I mean by that is that free speech as a philosophical principle and also as a legal principle was developed in order to protect public discourse around things that matter to democratic self-governance and to protect that discourse from excessive intervention by government because we wanted to be careful to ensure that government didn't over-censor us and overplay their hand and act in a tyrannical way. And today, in so many areas, the concept of free speech has been stretched and distorted to apply to situations where it didn't used to apply. And as a result, in my view, the whole concept of free speech is fundamentally being weakened. And I'll give you a couple of examples. One is that uh, commercial speech, which is what companies say publicly, used to be considered easily regulable as distinct from political public discourse. In the contemporary environment, we expect more from our companies. We expect our companies to have positions on LGBTQIA plus rights. We expect them to have positions on climate change. Um, And so that is kind of uh, playing at the edges. But more importantly, there's actually a current um, case going on in the United States where there is a challenge to a proposal by the Securities and Exchange Commission to impose rules requiring public companies to make disclosures about their environmental impact, for example, their greenhouse gas metrics. And the challenge to that is you can't force companies to release this information. That's a violation of their free speech rights. We've had a law in California invalidated by the courts because it required healthcare providers to disclose the availability of the services they provided, including if that service was available, abortion. And so the law was simply requiring providers to say what they provided as a service and that got overturned on free speech grounds. We have free speech being applied to all kinds of scenarios where it ought not to be applied. We have bakers baking a cake or refusing to bake a cake and being charged under anti-discrimination law and being told you cannot refuse to bake a cake that is providing a service to customers. And if you have gay customers who come and want you to bake them a cake, even though you personally have a personal belief that same-sex couples shouldn't get married, uh, you're not allowed to deny them the cake because that's an act of overt discrimination. And we have the bakers and photographers and florists and all kinds of people mounting free speech challenges to that. Is that free speech? That was more freedom of conscience challenge, wasn't it? It was a free speech and freedom of religion challenge. It was the two components. And so in this way, I think free speech is being stretched in an unmanageable way so that anybody who wants to win something is thinking, well, I'm going to try free speech. That's a winner. There's very little evidence that people who try the free speech argument, especially in the United States, are going to fail. And so we failed on other kind of political attempts to mobilise and campaign and strategize. So let's try this one. Mm. And so they're just, it's being stretched beyond its original conception, beyond its original purpose. And this is what I fear. How do you apply that concern to the Assange case? Because it seems to me that the free speech argument, you know, the, the genesis of free speech, as you really well articulated, is to do with freedom from government intrusion, right? Um, and allied to that, and, and, and this is where the media becomes relevant, is the indispensable 
process in a democracy of people being free to say things and expose things that governments don't want mm. said and exposed. Right. Yes. It seems to me, if you're going to say there's a conceptual slide going on, the Assange case may not be the best example of that because it is squarely on the issue of government intervention to uh, to limit or control speech and the exposure Except of, it's not of secrets. It's, Except it's, it's not. not. It's not Waleed. It's a stretch well, because Assange is saying that I can illegally obtain information, I can exercise no prudence or caution in what I choose to make public, I can put individuals at risk because I want to, I can ignore all of the principles of journalism and then when they come after me, which I knew was going to happen, I'm going to say, how dare you come after me? I have free speech. Yeah, so you can have your argument that it's a free speech argument that should fail, but it's not a misconceived free speech argument. It's saying it's still about the protection of or, or a revelation of government secrets and it's about government intervention um, in the limitation of speech, right? That, that's It's not the same as the, I don't know, some of the hate speech stuff you might want to reference. Hang on, can I... Can I just take a, a little step back here, which I think is helpful? Okay. Uh, hopefully this will put us all on the same page. If it okay. doesn't, feel free to tear out the page and bundle it up <laughs> and throw it on the floor. Okay. Um, one of the other overblown claims, I think, that has been made by Assangeists or Assange supporters is that the fact that Julian Assange is being charged under the Espionage Act, uh, again, creates precedent for journalists the world over, should they publish something that runs aground of American policy or whoever happens to be in the White House at that particular time, for them in turn as well to be extradited and then charged with espionage. What's really interesting to me, a number of people have been drawing the connection between Daniel Ellsberg's disclosures of the Pentagon Papers, the 47-volume account uh, of American foreign policy in Indochina uh, from the end of the, uh, the Second World War through to uh, the Vietnam War, and what Julian Assange has done by publishing this sort of trove, the uh, Afghan files and the Iraq files, the diplomatic cables, and so on. What's really interesting, and we forget this. The publication of the Pentagon Papers by the New York Times and Washington Post was, in fact, put on trial. It was put on trial. It was heard by the Supreme Court in 1971. It's New York Times v. United States. Uh, the U.S. government tried to prevent the publication of reports stemming from the Pentagon Papers. And they tried to prosecute that under the grounds of the Espionage Act. The Supreme Court found entirely against them. And what was so interesting to me is they did so on two bases. Number one, the Espionage Act assumes that the publication of information will do damage to the United States and give support to or give some kind of credence uh, to uh, or strengthen position to foreign powers. Uh, the other idea of the Espionage Act uh, is that there's a kind of willfulness uh, in the procurement, the illegal procurement and the dissemination of, of, of that information in such a way that a degree of the intention or the foreseeable intention of the, uh, of, of the gathering of that information and its dissemination is that the United States will be adversely affected. What's so interesting is that the Supreme Court found two things. Number one, that the lies that were being told by the U.S. government about the Vietnam War these were not lies that were being told to other nations as part of American foreign policy, but these were lies, Hannah Arendt described this beautifully. She said these were lies for domestic consumption. These were lies as a way of trying to build up or cover 
uh, um, the U.S. government's failings in the eyes of its own voters. Therefore, the Espionage Act that the Supreme Court found did not apply. Uh, this was nothing that had to do with other nations. This had to do squarely with how the American people would see its own government. Therefore, the Espionage Act doesn't apply. The other thing, and this is what I found so interesting, and this is why I think the connection that's often drawn between WikiLeaks and the Pentagon Papers just doesn't quite hold. Uh, one of the concurring opinions stated forcefully that the United States had a very difficult balancing act uh, to accomplish between, on the one hand, the protection of First Amendment uh, rights and the publication on the part of the press of information that's in the public interest. These might, these might include government secrets. On the other hand, the government's legitimate right, its legitimate interest, in keeping classified information secret. And so what the Supreme Court found is that the government should do everything that it can to keep information that it believes should be secret, secret. Now, obviously, that's going to be somewhat qualified by freedom of information requests. Uh, there are going to be whistleblowers, which are protected, say, by whistleblower lawyers. There are ways, of course, for those cracks or for, for cracks to be discovered and information that's intended to be kept secret to be allowed to come out into the light. That's sort of another story. But the other uh, principle, then, is that if the press has a responsibility to bring things that are in the public interest into light, and if government has an interest in keeping certain things that ought to remain secret, secret, then the government should, A, be permitted to keep that information secret, even if that means prosecuting people who might try to bring that information into the light. But B, if that information is then made public, the press, given the particular protections that are accorded to the press and the uh, standards of editorial responsibility or prudence of good judgment that go along with that, the press should be allowed to publish it. So that, I thought, is an astonishingly elegant solution here. Once things become public, provided that the proper editorial restraint, prudence, uh, the rules that internally constrain the journalistic vocation are followed, uh, the press's act of publishing ought to be permitted, but the government also ought to be given the ability to protect secrets that ought to remain secret. What those who are so fervently advocating for Assange seem to be overlooking, are we really saying that states don't have an interest or shouldn't have a right to keep certain things secret? Are we really saying that they shouldn't be allowed to prosecute those who break in or conspire to illegally obtain information that ought to remain secret? It seems to me that the Supreme Court uh, resolution or the solution in 1971, I, I think that's just about as good a solution as we're going to get, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. That means then, just to put a bow yeah. on it, the free speech argument is on the side of the press. Yes. The free speech argument is not on the side of those who try illegally to obtain that information. Yes, or who publish it without exercising the editorial restraint and the prudence that, right. that is essential to that relationship. That's right. So the stretch here is Assange trying to, or Assange's team trying to rewrite what we define as journalism and what therefore ought to be subject to the most strenuous and robust free speech protections we can possibly get. And that is what I disagree with. We can't allow that special protection to be extended to anybody with a keyboard, no matter how they obtain the information, no matter what they want to release, and without exercising any, any editorial restraint or prudence or judgment. If we do that, 
then it becomes too broad. And then we've lost that special protection, which is so essential. It's not that I don't think that protection is important. Quite to the contrary, I think that protection is absolutely essential to the right functioning of a democracy. We have to have it. And if we are to keep it, we need to understand its parameters. Mm. That voice belongs to Catherine Gelber, Professor of Politics and Public Policy at the University of Queensland. Our guest for this week's edition of The Minefield will lead Ali's my name. Scott Stevens is his. The question I would have is I don't know, Scott, maybe you know, because you, you'd know the, the internecine facts of this better than I do, but. Um, do we know for a fact that these people were put in danger? Have any of them been harmed or killed or, or anything like that? This is, in fact, I think, a very important element. Again, Assange's supporters say that no evidence has been produced by United States prosecutors to British courts that anybody was killed, injured, harmed, dot, 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 as the result of WikiLeaks' uh, indiscriminate leaking of unredacted information. What I think is conveniently left out of that, however, well, it, and it is true that U.S. prosecutors have not produced that information. Uh, to some extent, however, that's immaterial on two counts. One is an astonishing amount of diplomatic, on-the-ground, collaborative work took place in the 18 months following that data dump to try to get those who would have been adversely affected or killed out of harm's way. So to say that nobody was in fact killed and to say at the same time that for 18 months, extraordinary lengths and extraordinary costs were undertaken in order to try to get said persons out of harm's way, I'm not sure if the first argument necessarily holds the water that it's meant to. In other words, this was a consequenceless data dump and therefore no consequences should be broached. The other issue here, Waleed, and this is where you might have to speak to it, is the issue of the consequentiality of intention. Is the fact that Assange and WikiLeaks was heedless, had no concern for the safety or well-being? I'll just read you, for instance, what Assange said in response to some of the objections on the part of Guardian journalists about the danger to which informants would be subjected. Uh, this is from uh, Luke Harding, David Lee's book uh, um, on WikiLeaks. Well, they're informants. This is Assange. Well, they're informants. So if they get killed, they've got it coming to them. They deserve it. So whether or not someone did in fact get killed... Does the heedlessness of the act itself, is that legally culpable, even if no one was in fact killed? I don't know the answer in law. I, I would suspect in this, this is an area where I don't think intention would necessarily matter. Hmm. I think you, you come up with a policy position or a legal position based on the principles of whether or not certain things should be protected absolute and then, and then that is that, right? And whether or not you were sensitive to something or heedless of something, if you've stepped over that line, you've stepped over that line. Mm, I think okay. that's the way the law would have to work. That's yep. not the same thing as making a moral judgment about it, which no. is where our disagreement about the relevance of intention lies <laughs> in the moral realm. But but in the legal realm, I'm not entirely sure. I'm not entirely sure that it would. Isn't that um, also the case here that, you know, under the rule of law, you're supposed to be able to anticipate in advance whether something you're doing is illegal or not. Reckless endangerment. and endangerment. Yeah, and so we can't wait to find out whether people were killed as a result of what you did to use that as the basis for deciding whether it was morally conscionable and whether it was legally appropriate. We have to be able to know in advance that if you're putting people at high risk, then you're putting people at high risk. Yeah, I guess, and that's true for a court. I think that's right. And for the formation of the law. I think what I'm asking is, 
um, whether or not we, as people who are not sitting in judgment in a court or, or whatever, but just looking at this from afar, um, can use that as a way of reflecting on whether or not the claim that this puts people in danger is a robust one. That's all. So, I, yeah, I think you're absolutely right, Catherine, in the way that you framed that. I think I'm just asking a slightly different question or mm. or putting it in, in slightly different terms. I Can I ask I, you a question, Waleed? Yeah, sure. So what's wrong with this scenario? Let's just say Assange is extradited. He is formally charged. He is placed on trial. Would I be wrong in thinking that that will be one of the most heavily covered, publicized, notable trials in the last two decades, maybe more? No, that's right. All sorts of First Amendment considerations, all sorts of representations from media bodies, from civil rights activists, all sorts of representations will be made. The idea that it would be a show trial, to my mind, is unconscionable. And certainly when one considers the lengths to which the Department of Prosecutions, public prosecutions has gone, the, the Defense Department in the United States has gone to, to try to be very, very careful about what in fact is on trial here and what is not. Would it really be a terrible thing for the fuzziness that may well exist surrounding First Amendment free speech protections and the demands of transparency within an accountable democracy? Would it really be a terrible thing for that to go on trial? And if the assurances that the U.S. prosecutors have given that they would have no objection to Julian Assange should he be convicted, spending the extent of his sentence in Australia, I'm just wondering how is that the heavens falling? How is that a seismic challenge to the freedom of press and the transparency of Western democracy? Yeah, but to ask me that question is tricky because you're making me mount an argument I'm not making. So (laughs) that's not a position. I'm I'm not saying the heavens would fall in. You know, I think I can see my way to your position of saying that, you know, there is something beneficial to be gained from at least prosecuting that, going through that process. Um, Maybe the position I come from, which was why it was my starting position, was a nervousness about this. And it's a nervousness that isn't settled by saying the media has a whole lot of interests that it will represent in this trial, because the media's interests are also going to be those of dealing with a competitor and not just a competitor in media, but a competitor in model. Um, And the court's going to have to weave their way through this. So whenever you talk about, you know, the legitimate interest of the state in protecting its assets, et cetera, et cetera, it wouldn't be hard for me to construct a scenario of perhaps a different government or a different war or different effort that involves informants, that is doing something that is so gravely unconscionable in another country. Mm. And mm. I would I would argue the Iraq war does fit that yes, I category. Agree. But, I agree. but, you know, all other kinds of um, subdiffusion and regime change. I mean, if, it, if we were talking about um, someone who had released these documents about a government that we find far more distasteful, I don't know, say you want to say who's unpopular at the moment, the Russian government or something like that. I I think we would approach these principles in a very different direction. In other words, I think what I'm perhaps reacting to, and perhaps reacting too strongly to, but what I think I'm reacting to is a sense that so many of the presumptions here proceed on the basis of the goodness of the state and the legitimate interests of the state in these respects being so unimpeachable. Interesting. 
and it, um, that concerns me. Yeah, I agree with that. There's also another reason to be nervous about that trial that you outlined, Scott, and that is that we live in an age of alternative facts. We live in an age where huge numbers of people believe things that are evidently not true. We live in an age where data, where facts matter less than they ought to for the good functioning of democratic institutions. And this trial, if it goes ahead, as, as I agree, one of the most widely covered trials, is likely to provide fodder for that pro particular problem, which is a huge problem, of course, and there is no easy solution to it. And I'm not saying that we should deny justice in some way because it feeds the machine, but but this is another reason to be nervous mm. about that trial, I think. You mean even if there's a benefit in establishing precedent? Yes. There could be a profound detriment in that the trial itself would be so divisive that it actually deepens the already bitter dispute that kicked off this conversation. And corrosive to those democratic institutions that are so essential for our ability to find our way out of the increasing government intervention against free speech. So my overall view is that governments are overreaching on free speech, that governments are interfering in free speech far more than they should and that the difference between the Pentagon Papers and today is we've had 9-11, we've had rafts and rafts of, of lawmaking in liberal democracies that significantly impinges on free speech. So I'm not, I'm not naive about that, but I think that there are reasons to be nervous for the, for the uh, robustness of our democratic institutions as a result of the saga that is not just Julian Assange, but the whole thing. Interesting. In our informational landscape, this is becoming an argument that we've evolved a society that's unworthy of the institutions <laughs> that are designed to protect it. That's a good sequel to this show. Uh, <laughs> unless it will have to be a sequel because we're out of time. Catherine, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you very much Catherine for having me. Catherine Gelber, Professor of Politics and Public Policy at the University of Queensland. We're done for the minefield for this week. We'll see you next week. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.